And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I wonder if you ever uh, wonder about the question as to how reliable our Bibles are. Uh, that's certainly a challenge that can come from non-believers. Well, surely over the years, uh, what has happened is that people have got hold of the Bible and they've changed the text and altered things a bit. So how can we possibly be sure that what we've got today is at all reliable? Well, in some ways, this passage in John chapter 8 is something of an answer to that. Now, most of you these days are not holding a Bible in your hands. You're looking probably at the screen. Some of you may be looking at the phone. If you are looking at the phone, you should be looking at this passage. All right? and, uh, <laughs> uh, but if you have a Bible in your hands, you will see that it actually says about this passage, and it's very clearly there in, in the Bibles that you have, this is not in the earliest manuscripts. Now, when it comes to the manuscripts of the Bible, we have 6,000 early manuscripts of the New Testament, 6,000 of them, early manuscripts. There's many more besides that, but early manuscripts. We have 36,000 quotes from the New Testament by the early church fathers. Now, this is extremely important. There is no other piece of ancient literature that has anywhere that number of manuscripts. Nowhere near. Mostly it's three, four, a dozen or so on any other ancient piece of literature. And no other ancient piece of literature has anywhere near such early manuscripts nearest to the original as we have of the New Testament. Now why this is important is this. That manuscript scholars therefore have the ability to compare manuscript with manuscript. And they've got thousands of them. And they've got thousands of quotes from the New Testament from the early church fathers. And so these experts on manuscripts can look at these different manuscripts and they can see if there has been an error that's crept in. Is there a letter that's got in there that shouldn't have got in there? Has a word been slightly changed? And so they can check it all again and again across these thousands of manuscripts, which means that we have, without doubt, a highly, highly reliable New Testament. There's no question about that. In fact, there's only very, very few occasions when there is doubt about a particular word. Uh, and when that doubt does occur, it never affects the actual sense of the message. But I'll give you an illustration. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 5, Jesus is talking about activity on the Sabbath day. And he says, if your son falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, or he might have said, if your ass or your donkey falls into a pit on the Sabbath day. The word for son and the word for donkey are almost the same in Greek, and so it would be very easy to make a slip up. And in fact, if your son did fall in the pit on a, a Sabbath day, he'd be a bit of a donkey anyway. So, but it, it doesn't change the meaning of the text. It's, it's, that's just an illustration of how you can tell uh, if the manuscripts are reliable. That, that kind of thing is the only thing where there is a bit of doubt sometimes on the occasional word. So there is a commitment to accuracy of the New Testament. And therefore, the Bible translators are absolutely honest about these opening verses in John 8, and they say 
they are, these verses are not in the oldest manuscripts that we possess. So you might think, well, why is it there at all? And the answer would be this, that in the early church, uh, amongst the early disciples, there would have been a huge amount of oral tradition. In other words, stories that were told about Jesus that circulated around that are not in our Gospels. Right at the end of John's Gospel here, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for all the books that would be written. And so, obviously that's an exaggeration to make a point, but it's making the point there's masses of stories that are not contained actually in our Gospels, just many too, too many stories to tell. And this story would have been one of them. And so later on, as this story continued to circulate around, somebody decided to slip it into uh, John's Gospel, and there it is. And nobody doubts that it is a genuine story of Jesus. And what a wonderful story it is of this woman who is caught in the act of adultery but then encounters Jesus. My first point, the question, the question, because there's a very big question. And it's asked by teachers and Pharisees, and it's a trick question. So Jesus is uh, sitting down to teach in the temple courts. In those days, that's what happened when a rabbi taught. He would sit down and the people would gather around him. And you can imagine the scene. Jesus is there sitting. Uh, the people are gathered around him. And suddenly there's a bit of a commotion because some Pharisees are dragging a terrified woman through the crowd and push her forward and put her in, in the front of Jesus. And then these Pharisees and teachers of the law, they address Jesus and they say, teacher. Now, they had no respect for Jesus, but uh, they wanted to kind of act as though they were being respectful. So they say, teacher. And they say to him, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, which would mean that they would have to have been two independent witnesses. And under Jewish law, under the law of Moses, she should be stoned for her adultery. And here's the big question. What do you say, Jesus? Now, it's a trap to catch Jesus. That's made clear in verse 6. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. And also, we have to ask the question, where's the other guilty party? It takes two to commit adultery. The man's not there. And it shows that these Pharisees, they're not interested in justice. What they actually want is to get at Jesus. They want to discredit Jesus. But it is a very clever question. Because if Jesus rejects the law here and says, oh no, just let her go, then they could say, you're a lawbreaker. We have the law of Moses. Now you've broken the law. A very serious accusation. You're a lawbreaker. But if Jesus upholds the law, well then where's his compassion? And where's the love that he's famed for and his grace? And even it could be that he'd be in problems with the Romans who were occupying the country because only they legally could put somebody to death. Surely they've got him trapped. How is Jesus going to answer? Well, he bends down and he writes in the dust which is on the ground. And that is uh, something that's produced one of the big unanswered questions of the New Testament which is, what did Jesus write? And we're not told. But as you can imagine, there's plenty of speculation. Some suggest that Jesus was playing for time. 
And perhaps I wonder in some ways whether he was, whether he was deliberately building the tension. We read that the, the Pharisees kept pushing for an answer from Jesus. There's this terrified woman standing in front of Jesus. Notice this, Jesus doesn't look at her. He doesn't look at her shame. He bends down and stares at the ground and not at the woman. The crowd is watching and waiting. You can feel the tension crackling in the atmosphere. It's a bit like one of these television programs where there's been a competition like the Bake Off or something and uh, you get the, 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 the final couple or two or three who, who stand there and the, the winner is, and it goes boom, 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 and the, the tension builds and you think, oh, come on, give us the answer. But when Jesus does reply, it's nuclear. <laughs> if any of you are without sin, you can be the first one to throw a stone. And what can be overlooked here is that Jesus actually upholds the law. Because he, does, he says, stoner. But then, of course, he adds this. But if you're without sin, you be the first one to throw the stone. And I want to suggest to you that may be a clue as to what Jesus was writing in the dust. Because I wonder if what Jesus wrote in the dust, which could only have been brief, he couldn't exactly have written long sentences, I wonder if Jesus just wrote in the dust one or two of their sins, lust, impurity. Now, if any of you are without sin, throw the first stone. And the men that are there, surely, are any of them going to be without sin? And so the accusers peel away. It begins with the oldest, and in that culture, that's how it was. The oldest gave a lead, and the younger ones would have followed. And suddenly, there's no one left. It's absolutely brilliant. Well, can we relate to that at all? What would you write if you were writing in the dust? Well, today, we would write on a piece of paper. If you wanted to accuse other people, what would you be writing down? Oh, he, he's a gossip, and uh, uh, she's greedy, and... They're selfish. You could write words like that on a piece of paper. And imagine you took that piece of paper to Judgment Day. Would it not be that that piece of paper would actually be a judgment on ourselves? <laughs> I'm guilty of that. I wrote down to accuse other people, but I'm guilty of that. And we will be self-condemned even before God gave his opinion on us. We want to throw stones at other people sometimes. We're very conscious sometimes of other people's thoughts and failings and sins. But brothers and sisters, we're guilty. And that's exactly why, like this woman, we need to have an encounter with Jesus. So secondly, let's look at the woman. There is actually a bigger question in some ways than what did Jesus write down. I think the bigger question is why didn't the woman run away? After all, all the accusers had gone, why didn't she just hoof it? I mean, she should have just gone at that moment. Well, the answer must be that this woman encounters Jesus. Obviously, she does in the sense that she's standing in front of him, but surely there's more than that. There is something about the presence of Jesus that is utterly compelling. And as you look through the New Testament, there's so many instances of that. I think of Peter, for example, denying Jesus three times. And then as Peter has denied 
Christ the third time, we read that Jesus turned and looked at Peter, and Peter was broken. He was in the presence of Jesus, and Jesus looking at him, and it actually broke him as he realised what he'd done in denying Jesus three times. I think of Jesus before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, man of great power. And what we read is that as Jesus stood in front of Pontius Pilate, that Pilate was amazed at Jesus. There was something utterly compelling about him. And if you go into the book of Revelation, you'll see that there John sees a vision of Christ in glory. And the only response he can make when he sees the that Jesus is in glory and that he's in his presence is to fall down as though he's dead. And if you go to near the end of the book of Revelation, perhaps most startling of all, John gets another vision of the end and he says, I saw a great white throne and him, that's Jesus, who was seated on it, and earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. Why? Because as Jesus is there seated on the throne, it's as though the rest of creation doesn't exist. It's as though heaven and earth flees away. There's something absolutely compelling about the presence of Jesus. And surely that's what this woman felt. His presence as she just stands there in front of him. My friends, think of this. One day that's going to happen to all of us we will stand visibly in the presence of Jesus. How compelling will that be? I think also that she would have been held by the love of Jesus. Jesus is so courteous with this woman. He doesn't stare at her. He deliberately writes in the ground. I mean, there's no suggestion that this woman isn't guilty. She's been caught in the act of adultery, and the shame that would have been on her, but Jesus doesn't stare at her, even though she's guilty. And then when he does turn to her, he's very courteous with her. He says, woman, and that may sound a bit kind of blunt to us, but in the culture of the time, it would have been an entirely courteous and polite way of speaking to this person. And in that moment, he's just saved her life. Where are your accusers? They've gone. And her life is spared. At the beginning of each year, I always take some time out uh, just to review the past year and to seek God and pray for the coming year. I, I just arm myself with a Bible and a, a piece of paper and a pencil. And I just spend uh, um, some hours completely on my own and just thinking about last year and uh, thinking about the year to come. I kind of usually do it between, as it were, the old and new year. And uh, whenever I do that, I, I feel that God tends to lay something on my heart. Sometimes it's been a, a particularly uh, special encounter. Uh, and I, I take note of what God, I feel, is saying to me about the year to come. Well, at the beginning of this year, or in between the old and new year, I, I took a time out like that. And I felt what God laid on my heart for this year, in which we're now in, was Romans 8.31. It's not always just a verse. Sometimes it's, there's a lot of detail with it. But on this occasion, I felt that God laid this particular verse on my heart. Romans 8.31. If God be for us, who can be against us? And there's a very spiritual answer to that. If God be for us, who can be against us? Ah, oh, nothing, nobody. Let me tell you this, my friends. Everybody and everything's against us. 
the cultures against us. The way that people are thinking these days is against us. Russia's against us. You might be to think of people that you personally know that are against you. There's all sorts of people, and there's the culture and the state of uh, people's thinking and the way that society's going. I mean, you, you can begin to list it up. You could say that everything and everybody is against us. But if God is for us, finally, nothing can prevail against us because we're held by the love of God. And that is the safest place in the universe. God is for us. And if somebody was to say to us, who are your accusers? Our response ought to be this. If God is for us, no accusation can stick. (laughs) You know, you're a nobody. Hey, I'm a child of God. You don't belong. Hey, I belong to the family of God. You're full of rottenness. You've done so many rotten things. Hey, I've been forgiven by God. I'm held by the love of God. So even on the last day, if the Lord himself was to say to us, who accuses you? Like Jesus said to the woman, we can say, no one, sir. Jesus has saved our life. We're held by the love of God. I think this woman in these moments also clearly experienced the mercy of God. Jesus said to this woman, neither do I condemn you. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. And neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared. In that moment, this woman was experiencing the mercy of God. And in a way, what we have here is the gospel. When Jesus says, no condemnation, let me say to you, that is all that you and I will want to hear at the end of our life, when we appear in the presence of God, when we before come before the judgment seat of Christ, the great and the small, the living and the dead, when Jesus comes again, when everybody appears without exception before the judgment seat of Christ, what we're going to hear from Jesus if we're in Christ and have believed in him is that there is now no condemnation. I do not condemn you. Let me remind you once again about 2,000 years ago, there was a cross that was erected on a hill called Calvary. And Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified there. And he was an innocent man. He carried no sin. He carried no guilt. But in that time that he was crucified, it, is the, it was as though he was the greatest sinner and had, was guilty of everything that was possible to be guilty of because Jesus substituted for us. He was in our place crucified for us, taking our place, taking our position, taking our condemnation, knowing what it was, even in those moments, to feel separation from God, taking our hell, taking all that should come against us because of what we've done wrong in this life. Jesus took the whole lot upon himself. Everything that we had done was, as it were, put upon Jesus at that moment. But the curse was broken. And everything that will condemn us is taken away. And Jesus is able to say to us, I was crucified for you. I took it. I did it. 
I do not condemn you. So that in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 we read, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. As John Wesley put it, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and I claim the crown through Christ my own. How wonderful for that woman, having been covered in shame, knowing that she had been guilty of gross sin. How wonderful for that woman, in the presence of Jesus, experienced the love of Jesus, could hear what Jesus said to her, there is now no condemnation. What an encounter with Jesus. And how wonderful for us, if we've encountered Jesus, to know that at the end of our life, whatever other people might say about us, what will be said over us is there is now no condemnation because we've encountered Jesus Christ. Let me take you to the last words, really, of this passage where Jesus said, go now and leave your life of sin. He says, uh, no, then neither, neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The simplest way of translating that is simply that it says in the Greek, sin no more. Uh, and uh, it's been slightly expanded in the translation in a way. But uh, Jesus just says to her, sin no more. When Jesus says there is now no condemnation, it's a word of grace to you and to me. But it also means don't go on sinning. There is a, a scripture in Titus, in Titus 2, which says the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. That's the grace of God. We've experienced the grace of God. We're taught to say no to ungodliness and sin. Now, there is a question above all questions that Christians worry about. And strangely enough, somebody spoke to me about it only this morning before this service. And the question that worries Christians more than any other question by far is whether I can lose my salvation. And I've often said that in my 50 years or so of pastoral ministry, if there's one question that had been asked of me far more than any other question, it would be simply that one. Is it possible for me to lose my salvation? And I want to say this morning that I believe the answer to that is no, and I want to give you a couple of reasons. The first reason that I'm going to give to you is actually what I think a very, very simple answer to the question of whether I can lose my salvation. And so simple, it's almost as though sometimes people overlook it. There's a huge amount of teaching that can be given on this subject, and there are whole books that are written on this subject. But in some ways, there is just one very simple answer to this question as to whether we can lose our salvation. I think the answer must be no, simply for a clear doctrinal reason. When we are saved, that is the action and activity of God. We don't save ourselves. God acts. We are born again by his spirit. He does the work of salvation in us. It's his work of grace. He brings us from death and into life. I simply ask this question. If God, the eternal God, saves us forever, how can he sometime later go on and unsave us forever? There is just no doctrinal possibility of that happening. So I say I think the answer is actually a very simple answer doctrinally. 
But then there are obviously there are verses in the Bible that people have concerns about because is it suggesting something else? Let me take you to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 for a moment. And the reason I'm taking you to Hebrews 7 is because some of you uh, will be very aware of Hebrews 6, which I won't get into at this moment, but this is the reason I'm taking you to Hebrews 7. But if you go to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, this is what we read. Therefore, he, which is Jesus in context, is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Now, in the English language, there is a certain potential and possible ambiguity with that verse. Because we're hearing it in the English language, therefore he is able to save completely or to the uttermost or forever. You can use any translation like that there. Jesus is able to save completely or to the uttermost or forever. But when we read that Jesus is able to save completely... It does something in our mind which means that we start to think, well, maybe there will be times when he wouldn't save us forever. He's able to do it. Obviously, he is. He's God. He's able to save us forever. But maybe because of something I've done, he won't save me forever. We, we kind of can bring that ambiguity into it. Now, this is where it's helpful to know something of the power of a Greek word. The Greek word which is used here and is translated, he is able is actually the verbal form of the Greek word dunamis, which many Christians just happen to know is the word for power. And so when we have the verbal form of the word like this, absolutely accurately, therefore he has the power and will save completely. Right. There's no ambiguity in the Greek text. He's got the power to do it. And he will save us completely. And notice how that salvation comes. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him. And if we come to God through Christ, through his redemptive work, through what he's accomplished on the cross, through his grace, if we come to God through Christ, then God is able and he will save us completely. And not only that, but he always lives, again referring to Jesus, to intercede for them. And so Jesus has not only saved us through what he did in the past, through his activity on the cross of Christ, but in a sense he's maintaining our salvation right now in the present because he continues to pray for us and to bring himself, as it were, and all that he has done before the Father as a constant reminder that he has given his life for us and has saved us from our sin by his sacrifice. And so in that verse you have a reference to the finished work of Christ, that Jesus, through what he did, he did once and for all upon the cross and it is finished, but you have a reference to the unfinished work of Christ, which is even now, today, at this moment, Jesus is praying for you and for me. I don't know how more strongly than you could put it than that, that Jesus is able to save through his power and he will, those who come to God through him and he's always praying for us. Now, having said that to you, I went to a conference some years ago in Brighton, which was addressed by the famous John Piper. Uh, if you don't know John Piper, one of the greatest preacher theologians in the world today, and he was at this conference in Brighton. And if anybody would teach once, uh, once that you're saved, you're always saved, and there is a perfect assurance of salvation, you would say John Piper would. That's his whole kind of theological base. That's where he's coming from. 
but he was speaking over the course of a couple of days, a whole number of times. And the more the people in the crowd listened to him, it was mainly uh, full-time pastors, the more people began to say, I don't think John Piper does have assurance of salvation. He seemed almost to be undermining that. It didn't seem that he had it. And so there was quite a lot of confusion, but I, I believe I've got an insight into what John Piper was doing. John Piper's approach to this matter of eternal assurance of salvation was a bit different to the way that we tend to approach it in England, to be honest. In the UK as Christians, what I've discovered is this. We want to tie up once saved, always saved, as we put it, into a neat bubble of once saved, always saved. And we want to make sure that we can fit every difficult verse into that and every difficult story and anecdote of a person who seems to have had faith and then lost their faith into that bubble of once saved, always saved. As long as we can kind of win the argument and get everything into the once saved, always saved bubble, phew, we feel all right. That was not John Piper's approach. John Piper's approach is this. If you want to be sure of your salvation, live the life. Sin no more. That's his approach. And my friends, whatever I've just said to you in these few moments, I want to make it very clear. I'm not teaching cheap grace. Say that you believe in Jesus and live how you want to. It doesn't matter. No, Jesus says sin no more. Live the life. If you're redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, it changes you and you will show it. So live a life towards Jesus and not turn away from Jesus. So this woman, she encountered Jesus. The question is obvious this morning. Have you encountered Jesus? Do you know what it is to be held by his presence? The awesome, compelling presence of Jesus. Have you experienced his, his love that he saves your life? Have you known his mercy that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Saved your life and declared that there is no condemnation. That's the work of Calvary. That's the work of the cross. That's the work of Jesus. Our responsibility, sin no more. Live the life.